your strategy has always been to help you know people enjoy great coffee and help producers produce better coffee and have a good lo- and have you know a good return um, as well and help cafe owners grow that doesn't change um, and so if anything it just helps you do more of that at a larger scale campos is one of the best known coffee brands in australia supplying its beans to around 700 cafes across the country uh, it was founded in sydney in 2002 it's uh, has a flagship store in newtown and also in queensland and has recently Come to the city that considers itself the coffee capital of Australia and possibly the world. That's Melbourne, my hometown. Uh, so a flagship store has recently opened in Chapel Street. Um, our guest today is John Ronchi. He's the uh, commercial director of Campos. Uh, and something interesting about the company is that it was acquired by Dutch company JDE Pete in 2021. So this is a coffee story. This is a business story. This is a story about uh cafe culture in Australia as well. John, welcome to Dirty Linen. Thanks for having me, Dirty. Tell us about your role at Campos and where the company's placed at the moment. Yeah, sure. I guess um, I've been around in the business since almost the beginning, I guess. I I just celebrated my 15th year anniversary in the business and the business has been around about 20. So I guess I've been here from the start and um, started in the business as a um, customer of Campos, um, not long after Will had founded it and then moved into becoming more involved and in opening the operation in Queensland, Northern Territory, um, and went through this process of uh, growth with, you know, along with the business. So, you know, we, I guess, have always had this methodology of just wanting everyone to love great coffee as much as we do. And that's been the backbone of, I guess, um, our strategy, you know, in regardless of of how we've progressed um, through the years or what sort of channels we've moved into. Um, We just wanted to make great coffee accessible to everyone and and certainly – and move, you know, back into Melbourne. We've been in Melbourne, you know, in Victoria for quite a few years. But like a lot of businesses, I think COVID uh, got the better of us in a few ways. And at least it expired just before COVID and for our roastery and our cafe. So unfortunately, with all the borders shut, we weren't able to come down and find new locations. And with everything freeing up again, it gave us the opportunity to really uh, relaunch and open our um, new warehouse in Yarraville and then obviously a new flagship store on Chapel Street, which is a great place to be too. Yeah, well, I guess Chapel Street itself is um, undergoing a little bit of a renaissance. It certainly uh, had, you know, tricky times, still a lot of empty shops, but that South Yarra end, there is a lot of development, certainly a lot of residential. So hopefully it'll be um, a huge success for you guys. I think, you know, the Campos story is, almost one of the the great origin stories of Next Wave Coffee in Australia. You know, Will, in the late 90s, famously, like, tried a cup of coffee that changed his life and then um, was one of the people that, I suppose, kicked off the whole um, specialty coffee industry in Australia. Um, You've been with the company for a while. I mean, what sort of changes have you seen in the way that Australians approach coffee? Oh, we've. I mean, I'm. I'm very proud to tell uh, 
everyone that will listen, particularly anyone when I travel internationally, that Australia is at the forefront of coffee. Um, and I'm half Italian, so that can be a challenging conversation when I go to Italy and tell them that, you know, they're so far behind that they really need to catch up. But, um, you know, I think you know, it changes all, almost monthly, Danny. There's just so much stuff happening all the time. And I've always, I think that's what has kept me in the coffee industry for so long is that um, it's just always interesting. There's always new things. It's um, a really young industry, I find. So as I've gotten much older, I'm constantly surrounded by younger people that keep me keep me young and they're always enthusiastic and probably over-caffeinated, but that's good too. And so, you know, the, even over the last 10 years, I mean, the advancement in um, equipment, particularly in cafes, which is kind of my background. So as a cafe owner, and I guess I'm still a cafe owner now, um, you know, I'm very interested in, you know, increasing um, how you can, increasing consistency, quality, um, you know, the traceability that's happened around coffee. I remember when, you know, I first started, you know, 15 years ago and we were, you know, sourcing coffee most coffee was coming through brokers and we were always like oh gee i wish i could get that again but we we didn't know where and and then all of a sudden everyone started going on origin trips and formulating relationships and some of those relationships that we you know have developed with producers 15 years ago we 20 years ago we still have today it's quite phenomenal you know we've seen their kids grow up and now the kids are running the farm um and so that's i think the thing that just is you know, really great about coffee. It's constantly evolving. It's constantly improving. Um, and uh, it's just a great industry to be in. I mean, it's also an industry that has, you know, a lot of problems um, in terms of uh, the way the economics of the industry is structured, where coffee is traded as a commodity and a lot of um, farmers are price takers and, um, you know, the supply chain is very opaque and gets very murky. Um, I mean, what does Campos do to ensure that your suppliers do all right out of the work that they do? Yeah, sure. Well, essentially all our coffee is fully traceable. So in some cases, depending on the origin, I mean, it's um, without sort of getting into the weeds of it too much. I mean, some, um, some particular countries say, for example, Ethiopia, you need to generally go through an exchange, but it doesn't mean it can't be traceable. So you can still find, you know, and deal directly with the farmer that you're wanting to to work with. Um, and so we've had um, various projects through the years and it really depends a lot on what the producer needs. So I guess the way that I explain this a bit, if you're a particularly small uh, roaster, small business, um, you may want to go along the path of choosing um, certified coffees, whether that be Rainforest Alliance or Fair Trade or Utes. Um, sometimes really big businesses end up going down that path too because it's much easier to ensure there's some sort of traceability and certification. And when you kind of sit in the middle with businesses like us, um, we have the ability and the resource to actually go to origin a lot more. So we visit prior to COVID and now starting again this year with everyone's very excited about, um, visit our producers, you know, once or twice a year um, to check in on projects that we may have with them, whether it be based on quality, whether it be environmental, whether it be social. So each particular um, group that we work with, um, and I'm saying some of them have been 
for years and years. Um, we have certain projects that are ongoing with them. And some of them, for example, from a social aspect might be quite developed, but now they're moving into wanting to focus more on um, environmental sustainability or even um, improving quality even further. So the thing to remember with coffee producers is that they have coffee that ranges from really what you might call low-grade commodity right through to a very high-end specialty. So each farm will have just like you know any sort of um, uh, organic uh, product, uh, commodity, there's different ranges of quality. And so all of that will get sold. Um, the real demand though uh, and obviously where there's a lot more financial gain for them is on the specialty end. And there's becoming a lot more demand for specialty coffee, which is great, um, but the supply is not keeping up. So that sort of tends to push, push prices up as well for them. So the the story that you that I, I see over the years, particularly, for example, with Campos, our involvement in the Cup of Excellence program, which is a, a great program that rewards producers for producing exceptional coffee, um, you know, one particular farm might win that award um, and get in the top top ten, top twenty uh, of that particular country, uh, and it's quite it's completely transformative for for that family and for that farm or for that cooperative. And so, what happens is the farms and cooperatives around that see that happening and go, well, actually, there's an opportunity for us to move out of that process of, to your point, just being price takers. Maybe we need to look at doing that as well. And so word of mouth, you know, travels and they go, well, actually, you know, uh, this particular farm or cooperative is selling all their coffee already to these, you know, handful of roasters. So they don't have any more capacity. So when new people arrive or new you know, potential buyers arrive, they're told, look, there's a cooperative down the road or there's a, a mill down the road that's doing similar things. Why don't you go and talk to them? And then that journey starts for them and they come out of that commodity cycle and into the specialty uh, world where it's um, a lot more financially viable for them. Yeah, it's amazing to be able to incentivize um, that that improvement in quality and, and really interesting. I mean, it is it – is, hard, I think, in Australia to feel connected to these farms and, you know, companies such as yourself and, and others um, do, a, do a good job of telling those stories. But I think to, to think that me wanting a better coffee or becoming more interested in coffee, that it, that it could lead to these, you know, actual changes, um, whether it's in Africa or in South America, wherever it is. I think it's, it's, um, it's worth trying to keep in mind because it's, um, it's not made up, is it? No, it's not. And, and you can see, as a consumer, you can start to see that change happen. I mean, for those you know, people that sort of were going to independent cafes 10 years ago, you know, the best you would get maybe in a cafe was they might have a, you know, Colombian, you know, Excelsior single origin. And if you were to ask a barista or ask someone where that was from, they'd probably shrug their shoulders and go, oh, Colombia. Uh, and that was the best that they would be able to get. Whereas now, you know, you're seeing, you know, we're an example. There's lots of specialty roasters around that are doing it. You know, you can see the photo of the farmer and the story of the farm and where it's grown, the varietal and all this information that was never accessible to people before. And um, and I guess I'm very fortunate that I've gotten to see it firsthand to be able to go back 
to those producers and, and show them the cars and say and show them photos and videos in cafes where people their, their face is on the the card and the people um, they get to see consumers actually try their product and know it's come from them and from their hard work rather than before just getting put into a generic bag um, and no one really knowing where it's come from so that would probably be my um, comment was if you want to support that that type of um, growth in the industry is support those businesses where they're able to tell you where the coffee's from and and show you and demonstrate it. That's a really good start. What's a farm or a producer that you just love visiting and where you've seen a transformation over the years? Oh, gee. I've been, well, I guess I've been very lucky because I've been to lots, um, but particularly probably um, – one of my most memorable was uh, my trips to Ethiopia, most probably because um, how how remote uh, some of the farms are, um, and particularly going and visiting um, um, the Mordekoff is one of the farms we, we bought from there, and Hello Celeste is the owner uh, who's been around for, for years and years. And um, seeing the farm transform over the years and uh, honestly Danny I could probably you know pretty much every place we've 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 touched you know as you get the opportunity to go back and visit um, you, you know you see them even from the point of view of again that commercial viability of them you know they start out with maybe 10 drying beds and now they've got 20 and now they've got 30 and then you know you're you're turning up to visit these farms and there's other specialty roasters from around the world that are now also buying from them. Um, and you all had this kind of connection of, of really wanting to be able to um, give people great coffee and, and be able to help these producers produce great coffee, which financially is like light and day for them. It really is. You know, being able to move out of that commodity cycle um, and having people come and, and also with the wealth of knowledge, right, that comes with that. So the feedback, and they love the feedback too, directly from consumers going, people are loving this particular coffee that you produce and the way that, and not just the actual green coffee, the raw product, but how they've processed it too, which is really important in the coffee world. There's all various different processing methods, which again, we could probably spend another hour talking about how processing methods in coffee have changed over the last 10, 15 years. But um, even that in itself um, has been quite transformative um, for a lot of producers and for the coffee industry in getting it much more aligned and probably more respected in the way that the wine industry has become, where you're getting you know, the same sort of characteristics, if not more so, from coffee than you do from wine, um, both based on the origin or the terroir, but also from the way that it's processed. Uh, you know, we see perhaps a picture of a, a coffee um, farmer on a card in a cafe, but I think just just spend a minute giving us a picture of this farm. Like what's the, is it like a rough road to get in? Is it on a hill? Like, is it really hot? Like, what, is it, what does it feel like? What does it smell like? All, all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> it's normally, you know, or say, for example, you know, in, um, I'll use Ethiopia as the example. You know, you fly into Addis and then it's normally uh, a two-day drive. Uh, you know, at least a one or two day drive out of Addis. Um, very, you know, extremely remote. Um, hard to get to. You know, plenty of photos of all of us outside the four wheel drive pushing the vehicle out of mud to try and get to. That's just to get to the farm. Um, and and they really vary. You know, some farms might be only a couple of hectares. You know, 
it depends if it's a part of a cooperative. So there might be a whole lot of small lot holders. Um, some are slightly larger when you go to com- countries like you know Colombia or Brazil. You know Brazil it, Brazil's quite advanced um, from uh, um, an agronomy point of view so you know much more um, organized and structured and a lot more uh, mechanized harvesting um, so they really vary but the the thing that's a constant is everyone's really proud of what they're producing and want to produce you know even better product because also too they need to make a living you know like a, a cafe owner or anyone else so they want to be able to produce better coffee to be able to sell it at a higher price um, and whether that be to you know, help send their kids to school, or just to expand to be able to you know produce more of it. So you know you have um, normally they're you know family run. Um, well, the people that we buy from generally are all family run um, businesses. So you know the family lives on site, and you know you have a you know normally a, a small mill um, nearby as well. But they're taking their coffee too. So these are you know very. Um, you know, incredibly picturesque places quite often, um, high altitude, so, you know, really nice, you know, cool sort of climate um, weather places um, and with lots of, um, you know, surrounded by rainforest and so they're, um, you know, sometimes it's sort of a, I guess within the coffee world, tell me, oh, you've seen one coffee tree, you've seen them all, but um, it's not really the case because every farm, every location is different. You know, sometimes they just have this one thing with their mill that's a little bit different than someone else is doing or, um, you know, the way that they're pruning trees is slightly different or they're trialling something new, which always makes it really interesting. Mm, Fantastic. Um, So, you know, Campos is a well-established company. I reckon you guys would have had a few bigger businesses sniffing around over the years looking to acquire. Um, and that finally did happen in 2021. JDE Pete acquired the company. They're a massive, like, $20 billion company based um, in Holland. They own Makona, among other big brands. I mean, I'd love for you to talk about why uh, Will or you guys um, – the directors decided that this was the right move to make and and what it's meant for Campos. Yeah, so we, I mean, I was a, a previous owner, you know, shareholder director as well before the acquisition. And, and you're right, I mean, over the years, people, you know, came knocking. Um, and it's like any business. I mean, people, um, I guess it's probably relevant um, for a lot of people when a, you know, a roast or a bigger business gets purchased. But the same thing happens in cafes when I was in the cafe you know, world-owning cafes, people come along and want to buy you. So it's probably a, a pretty normal part of life is buying and selling a business. And in the case with us, we were always determined that if, you know, the time was right and the time was getting right with the group of directors that we had, um, if we were going to sell, we wanted it to be sold to someone who would respect what we'd done. And um, for us, having a business like JDE Pete's that's a well, the world's biggest pure play coffee company, um, coffee and tea, but you know mostly coffee, um, come to us um, was was a quite compelling because we knew that they knew about coffee, and the other thing it would open to us is a world of opportunity in other categories and particularly in technology, um, and. Um, 
you know, I guess in a, in a way that we would really supercharge um, what we wanted to do as well. So, um, you know, these things take time, lots of conversations, lots of assurances, and, and that was part of the, the model for the acquisition, which was quite new to them, which was a um, very light touch or pretty much non-integration at all. It was very much a case of, you know, well, Campos gets acquired, but then how does the JDE business support Campos in continuing to do what it's doing? Um, and one of the you know exciting things you know for me personally and for us at Campos was you know now we're talking to uh, uh, um, colleagues at uh, Stumptown and Intelligentsia and Pete's in the US who we've always you know had a lot of line with, particularly Stumptown. You know we've been big fanboys of them for a long time and so there's a lot of alignment in a lot of the U- some of the US specialty brands um, as there is in, in Australia and particularly Stumptown and Campos kind of came on the scene a similar sort of time. We always ran into them at, at Origin. Um, there's a one particularly particular producer in, in uh, Colombia actually that they only sell their coffee to us and Stumptown. Um, and so for us um, to be able to get some insight into the US market and some of the um, new product development that they're working on um, to be able to help us has been really you know insightful. Um, and so we're talking to them regularly. So there's a lot of benefits for the Campos business in just having that um, those insights that we didn't have before. You know, for example, whether it be in you know, Nespresso compatible capsules. I mean, you know, JDE, Pete's um, manufacturer, the, they also have Law capsules, which is, you know, one of the biggest capsule brands in the world. And um, and so for us to be able to lean into that has been great as well to really be able to improve the consistency and the quality of our products. Mm, that's so interesting. I think, you know, people, when they hear about scale and about multinationals, they, um, you know, whether they continue to trust that company or you know, I, I guess when you've got this idea of specialty coffee is this real hand-to-hand thing where you're connected, you know, you think about small business, think about relationships. It, 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 so how do you protect that when you become part of this massive machine? Uh, sure, and that we still have the agility to be able to um, maintain everything we were before. I mean, there's really you know no change in the way we operate. Um, we still buy coffee the same way. We still operate the same way. Um, you know what it's done is more help us on the back end with certain things, and you know it's per, you know, for example, you were we've, we were on the. Um, road to implementing a new CRM system to be able to, you know, take care of our uh, cafe customers much better. Um, we were able to do that much quicker by utilising their relationship. So that's where the advantage comes from as far as what people may see as, you know, potential challenges around those sorts of things. certainly doesn't, you know, and hasn't applied to us because it's very much business as usual. And we're already, you know, in respective terms to other players in Australia, probably a larger player before the acquisition. And one of the things that, you know, we used to say and continue to say is, you know, the bigger you are in a lot of ways, the more good you can do too. So if you're, you know, your strategy has always been to help, you know, people enjoy great coffee and 
help producers produce better coffee and have a good and have you know a good return um, as well and help cafe owners grow. That doesn't change. Um, and so, if anything, it just helps you do more of that at a larger scale. Mm. And from the other side, John, like from a, perhaps a cafe owner who just you know it's their first business, they're thinking about how they scale or how they scale up and looking to perhaps sell their business or, or, or become part of a larger group, what would you say they should be looking at in terms of preparing themselves and their business for that next step? You definitely um, need to have a, an exit plan when you start. That was the biggest thing I learned from opening my first cafe. I didn't have it and I opened and the excitement of opening and had never really put any thought into, is this a long-term venture? Is this a, I mean, I was you know, fortunate that it was a sort of a rundown cafe that had pretty much closed down and I was able to get it really cheap and with the help of, you know, friends and family and I maxed out credit card, built it up and, you know, and then, but a few years in, so I went to, well, what am I doing? Is this long-term or not? And, and I think that's really the thing that I, um, always start out with talking to people when they're looking at first starting something is what's the intent you know is it and it's fine it could be any of the above it could be actually you know what i want to have this business forever it could be i only want to build it up for two or three years and sell it and move it on to something else and that's or i want to franchise and have or have multiple sites all until you can answer that question it becomes very hard to work out what your long-term strategy is and where you're going to invest your capital, um, what sort of people you're going to hire, um, you know, what sort of you know layout do you need, um, and it can be a bit challenging. The first one most people don't. It's sort of their second and third one that they you know move on to. They they realise that they need to kind of have that that plan and sometimes things change too you think you're only going to have one and then people come in and before you know it you have two or three um but it's really having that understanding and also having a, an understanding of um the hospitality business having had some exposure to it um the the successful businesses that I've always seen are started by people that have some exposure previously because it's tough going you know, um, it's a, it can be a very rewarding industry to be in, but it's also a lot of hard work. And I think sometimes as a consumer, as a customer, you walk into a cafe or a restaurant and you see the owner there and they're all smiling and happy. You're not seeing them out the back <laughs> stressing out because people haven't turned up and something broke down and they've got all these bills. That's because they're a really good operator and they make you feel comfortable and at home and they make sure you're looked after. Um, and that's a real challenge of owning a, a hospitality business is being able to maintain that but also um, make sure that you, you know, um, keep an income going and <laughs> keep the business running and make people feel happy at the same time. Yeah, I mean, it's something we love talking about on this podcast is that whole thing about costs and pricing and creating the magic or the illusion of magic. I mean, how price sensitive do you think Australian customers are to to how much they're paying for coffee? Mm. I think over, I remember, you know, starting out, um, particularly in my first business, um, you know, if you would raise coffee prices by 20 cents, you know, people would comment. They were used to giving you a $5 note and getting a certain amount of change back. Um, I think, you know, everyone, I mean, given the current climate, just the constant discussion around inflation, um, you know, interest rates, it's sort of got a lot of heightened attention. 
um, which is fair enough in pretty much any industry, I guess. I, the thing that I think is good about it is that we're talking about it a lot more, you know, in, say, for people like yourself, whether it be in podcasts or articles or generally in the media, you know, highlighting the fact that, you know, hospitality businesses um, are entitled to and and need to be able to turn a profit as well. And to do that, they need to be able to cost things appropriately. And I have never come across, you know, really that I can think of a, a hospitality business that has set out to, to gauge gorge anyone for pricing. You know, it's it's um they're doing their best to cover the costs of what may have been previously exorbitant rents, may still be. I mean, hopefully post-COVID, there's a little bit of rationalisation on that. Um, but extremely challenging for operators when, you know, they have huge rent costs. Um, you know, labour costs um, uh, have continued to rise, but in the sense that, you know, well-deserved from an industry that previously has probably had a bad reputation for people being, you know, exploited in some way. That's, you know, a lot more attention being put on that, which normalises things and, you know, again, makes it much more of a viable career opportunity for young people. Um, and then general cost of goods. So I think people are pretty... Um, sensitive to it, but at the same time, in the current climate, the customers that I talk to, um, you know, when, in one of our own cafes, one of our own flagships, um, sure, disappointed that the price goes up, but understanding that in some ways it, it needs to. Um, and I think, I just hope that um, governments try and keep some um, some rem or a reminder that how important cafes, restaurants, and hospitality are to the economy. You know, we we employ such a large amount of people per square meter. When you think of the average size of a cafe and how many people work in that business, and not only that, but the type of people that work in the business—they're normally young people that are going to be spending a lot of their money. Um, wearing massive GST collectors. Everything that we purchase is generally GST-free, and we put GST on it. Um, and all our suppliers are generally other small businesses as well. So, um, you know, I, I guess I'm biased, but I just think that, you know, hospitality generally is such a, a vital part of the economy and sometimes doesn't get the attention it deserves from, from governments um, with regards to the support that it's needed. Um, John, what is your coffee of choice? Uh, I'm a piccolo guy in the morning, but I tend to drink a little bit of everything. We um, In the office, we have a, a our um, office and roastery, uh, are the one building. And so um, when you walk past our reception area, you walk past our, our cupping and QA room and we have cupping on several times during the morning. So if I get an opportunity to go down and join that, um, you, know, you generally, uh, you know, not consuming lots of coffee, but you're getting it in your system. So that, and then if I ever go out and see customers or, you know, they always want to have a coffee with me as well. So I tend to um, have a bit of everything, but yeah, piccolo tends to be my go-to. I love it. Um, well, so great to get your perspective on all things coffee and yeah, a lot of great words on business and yeah, the hospitality industry more broadly. So John, really appreciate your expertise and your time in coming and having a chat with us today. Thank you. Great. Thanks for having me. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. 
hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you.